From beautiful Ashland, Oregon, I am Pleiadian Emissary of Light, Caroline Ra. Thank you all for joining me today. Welcome to Spirit of the Dawn. I hope that everyone listening is having a magical summer filled with beauty, love, and joy. Magic is flowing here in Ashland and everywhere on our beautiful planet. The mass consciousness is evolving so rapidly that ideas that were hard to grasp just a few years ago, we now have a place for in our knowing. We have awakened to much more than even our own imaginations had allowed for. What an exciting time to be here and share this planetary home. My guest today is a visionary pioneer in the field of cellular biology. Dr. Bruce Lipton is the best-selling author of the groundbreaking and empowering book, The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter, and Miracles. Bruce is an enthusiastic speaker filled with a deep passion for his work. I am delighted to welcome to Spirit of the Dawn, Dr. Bruce Lipton. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today. Caroline, thank you so much for this opportunity because, as you well know, we have so much wonderful information to share with your wonderful audience, and and, and, uh, I, I want them to also appreciate the fact that they're part of the of what we would call the cultural creatives, uh, the foundation of the new civilization, because they're seeking information out of the box, looking for other answers, finding other ways of life, and this is the groundbreaking work of seeding uh, a civilization that is beginning to dawn now. It's very important. We're all co-creating a new world together. It's absolutely exciting and amazing, and that's why we're here. And uh, I am so delighted. I have wanted to talk with you for so many years now, so I'm really happy. Um, I, I am happy because uh, more people will get to, to, to share with us information that I think is so exciting, it's mind-blowing. Bruce, why don't we share with people your, uh, you know, we could even start with your early childhood. It's so interesting to see how you got from the, the, the young boy you were to the, the, all the work that you've done and all the uh, groundbreaking work you've done with cells and then taking it so much further. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you've done in your life? <laughs> okay, volume one. Um <laughs> 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 uh, well, when I, when I was growing up, I had a very distinct turning point in my life in second grade, and, and that was when uh, the school science teacher brought in a microscope and, and had on there uh, slides with, like, paramecia and amoeba and, and, and little algae and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, and when I looked into that microscope and saw these amoeba moving around, in my child's mind, I really saw them as like, well, those are like miniature people living in this miniature world. You know, they weren't like pinballs bouncing around and just hitting things and stuff like that. They were like move over here and check out something and then move over there and check out something. So it's sort of like, wow. And, you know, and when you're a kid, you know, when you find something smaller than you, it's like that's really exciting as well. So there was this other world that I was introduced to, and I remember – uh, I, I went home after that class and was so excited that uh, I, my mother, uh, in, in response to my please, please, uh, bought me a microscope. And I spent uh, that summer between second and third grade trying to uh, photograph a picture through the microscope, um, uh, you know, things that I was looking at. And I, that was the old days with film and old brownie cameras and stuff like that. And I spent like weeks trying to get a picture, and every time I get the film back, you know, you take the picture and you have to go bring it in and wait four or five days and get the film back. And 
every time it just came back with a big white circle, nothing in it. Like it's like why I could never figure it out. And then by the end of the summer, I, I it caught on that. Oh my goodness! You know, my eye doesn't rest on the microscope where I put the camera. My eye is sort of back away from the microscope. So even at that age, it was so cool because when I backed up the camera and took pictures as I backed it up, I got some with the images on it. So that was my whole summer was was trying to do this and then end up after all that in graduate school being not just a regular microscopist but using the electron microscope. Uh, and the electron microscope is is the equivalent of like uh, compared to the regular microscope is like the Hubble. You you mm-hmm. go into deep space with this electron microscope. You not only see cells, you go into cells and through cells. And uh, and uh, it was like carrying a camera through the anatomy of a of an amoeba, for example. And and it was so exciting because uh, at that time when I was doing this, and this was uh, in the uh, mid '60s. Every day when I went to school and I saw something in that microscope, I saw something that humans had never seen before. So it was like, wow, it was so exciting to go to work every day to, to be surprised by the microscopic world and what it revealed. And basically, um, it, it led to um, my being a professor at a university while doing research. And, and my research focused on cloning stem cells. And I actually did my first stem cell cultures back in 1967. Uh, a lot of people think stem cells are relatively new. Uh, and back in 1967, there were just a handful of us in the entire world that even you know worked with or were aware of stem cells. And, and what was so exciting about it was my first experiments with these stem cells so blew my mind and altered my whole life that it, it, it was just like uh, stop on a dime and pivot off into another world. And, and basically... By the time I was doing this research and being programmed in graduate school of conventional biology about life being chemistry, genes, and proteins, and a little bag of all these mixed chemicals, and that's life, um, that, that's what I was teaching and learning. And yet, at the same time, I saw these cells as something different. I saw them as little people still after all those years. But what was interesting, I did this one experiment, and, and you don't even have to be a scientist to understand, like, wow. Because at the time I was doing this experiment, I was teaching also, um, like medical students, the basis of what we call genetic control, which is genes controlling your life, which is like genes cause cancer, genes do this, genes do that, so genes are like the big thing. And I, and I was cloning stem cells, and for people just to understand what a stem cell is, a stem cell is an embryonic cell. It's a cell that can become anything. Uh, and in fact, before you're born, uh, if I would take tissue sections of a fetus, for example, uh, we would look at these cells and say, these are embryonic cells. These are embryo cells. Uh, but the moment you're born, I take the same, you know, like five minutes later, take a slide from a newborn and then put it in a microscope. Oh, this is a stem cell. Uh, it's not an embryo cell anymore. You're born. So we changed the name stem cell. So it's just these embryonic cells in your body. And they're really wonderful because um, we lose billions, hundreds of billions of cells every day just from attrition and age and damage and uh, like we replace the entire lining of the digestive tract every three days that's you know hundreds of billions and billions of cells it's like well if you're losing these cells every day where do you get the replacement cells the answer is stem cells the stem cells are perpetual embryonic cells until called into action and then they provide what we need so here's my experiment and and it's, it's like it was mind-blowing then it's still mind-blowing if you think about it, it goes like this I take one stem cell and put it in a tissue culture dish by itself, and then I let it, and it divides about every 10 hours. 
So after a week or so, I've got about 50,000 cells in the Petri dish, all derived from the same parent cell. But what that means is they were all genetically identical. They all came from the same same you know parent cell. So I have 50,000 genetically identical cells, and here's what I do. I split the population into three different Petri dishes. And what I do is I change the growth medium, and the growth medium for a cell is it represents the environment. So cells are, are like fish. They have to live in an aquarium. And the aquarium that I, that I you know, put them in has all the chemistry and things they need to live. It's their environment. So I have genetically identical cells, three Petri dishes, but I change the environment ever so slightly in each dish, changing some of the chemistry. One dish, the cells form muscle. In a second Petri dish, the cells form bone. In a third Petri dish, the cells form fat cells. And then you, you ask this one so profound question. What controls the fate of the cells? And the answer is, well, it had to be the environment because they were all genetically identical. And all of a sudden, my whole world shifted from teaching genes control life to recognizing genes don't control anything at all. It's the environment and the cell's response to the environment and, and, and why this becomes so important is because uh, it, when I teach in medical school something like genes control, I'm teaching people that they're victims, meaning this. As far as we know, you didn't pick the genes you came with. You don't like the genetic traits you have. You can't do anything about it. They're your genetic traits. And then you say, well, geez, I didn't pick them. I can't change them. And they control me. I'm a victim of these genes. And that's why we look at, like, disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, uh, you know, multiple sclerosis. Go down the list. We look at these diseases and we say, oh, the genes did this. And it turns out, no, they didn't. <laughs> it's like, what? It's the cell's response to the environment that does this, okay? And the significance is that um, when we teach the old one, genetic control, control by genes, you're, you're teaching victim. But the new science, which has a name now, it didn't have a name when I did it because it wasn't even a field of science at that time. Uh, the, new, the, the, new, the name for it is called epigenetics. And, and that little prefix epi is a revolution, a whole revolution for the planet for this reason. Genetic control, control by genes. Epigenetic control, epi means above. So when I say epigenetic control, I am saying control above the genes. That's the new science. What does it reveal? It reveals that a, the cells or an organism, the, the behavior and genetics are really controlled by the interaction with the environment. And, 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 and that becomes empowering for this reason. We can change our interaction with the environment. We can change all these things. Why is that relevant? It says all of a sudden, I'm not a victim of the genes. I, I can change my environment and change my genetics. Well, what is the environment? I mean, change the environment where you live and all that? And I go, no, nah, here's the cool part, right? Is it's not just the environment. When I put cells in a Petri dish, it's the direct environment the cells are in controls the, the, the fate of the cells. So cells in a plastic dish are controlled by their direct environment, which is called the culture medium. Now, we make this interesting leap, uh, and it goes like this. You, Carolyn, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you see one human looking back. You say, yes, there's one human being, one organism looking back. And I go, that is actually a misperception, because a human being is actually comprised of about 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity, 
the human being, by definition, is the community of 50 trillion cells. So when you say Caroline, I say Bruce, that name is not representative of a single entity. It's representative of a single community comprised of upwards of 50 trillion citizens. And so why is this relevant? Because here's the fun part. A human being is the equivalent of a skin-covered Petri dish. We have 50 trillion cells in our Petri dish called the human body. And we have culture medium, and it's called the blood. And the composition of the blood, which is the culture medium, influences the genetics of the cell, which is, the point is this, it makes no difference to the cell if the cell is in a plastic dish or a skin-covered dish. It's still going to respond to the culture environment, which is the blood in the body or the medium I put in a plastic dish. And then I go, so if the blood composition changes, it changes the action and genetics of the cell? And the answer is absolutely. It's called epigenetics. And then I go, here's the, the, the connection. It goes, so what controls the chemistry of your blood? I go, well, the brain is, is like the, the releaser of the chemicals, neurochemicals. The brain is, is like a, a, a filled with little syringes with neurochemicals. I say, well, which neurochemicals should the brain put into the, to the blood culture medium? And then I go, ah, that's, the, that's based on the mind. If the mind sees the world, for example, let's say you're sitting there, you open up your eyes and you see someone you love, the mind releases neurochemicals such as like oxytocin and dopamine, vasopressin, growth hormone. And these hormones, if I put them in my tissue culture dish, the plastic dish, and put in the culture medium, that stuff, the cells become exuberantly healthy and grow very beautifully. That's why, simply point, when you're in love, you are generally so very healthy because the chemistry that your mind in love releases it goes into the blood, becomes a culture medium. The culture medium controls the behavior and the genetics, and those chemicals give you great health and energy. And I go, okay, same person sitting in the same place but opens their eyes and sees something that scares them. I go, oh, well, you're going to release totally different chemicals from the brain if you're scared versus if you're in love. When you're scared, you release stress hormones, uh, cytokines, which are uh, immune-regulating hormones, uh, inflammatory agents, you're getting the, ready, the body ready to make a protection response. And, and the point about it is, well, that changes the chemistry of the blood, which is the culture medium of the cells. Yeah, and it changes behavior of the cells. In fact, if I add the chemistry of stress to a Petri dish, it actually uh, shuts down the, the growth of the cells uh, as the cells shift into a protection posture. And so I say, well, look, biology was so simple. Cells are miniature people. Cells live in your body. Cells live in an environment, the, the culture medium, the aquarium, whose chemistry is controlled by the, the releasing of neurochemicals in the brain, which in turn is controlled by your mind. And all of a sudden it says, my goodness, genes don't control anything. It's how you perceive the world. It's Why is that important? Because you can change your perceptions. That means you can change your biology. If you were misprogrammed, and have misperceptions of the world, uh, it can cause all the illnesses such as cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, all those have already been demonstrated to be lifestyle-related. Cardiovascular disease the biggest one, all related to perception of the environment and the stress resulting from that. And all of a sudden, when we were looking, let's say, for cancer genes, we spent how many 50 years and billions of dollars looking for cancer genes, and it turns out there's less than 10% of cancer has a hereditary linkage 
90% of cancer is lifestyle. 90% of cardiovascular disease, all the heart attacks and all that other stuff, lifestyle. And why all this becomes important is that through the regular conventional education that I even taught students with, we blamed it on the genes so that people said, oh, you know, it's my genes that did this. And so, you know, they were victims. And now it turns out, no, it was lifestyle. Change your lifestyle and you can become as healthy as anybody. You just have to change your perceptions and your responses because your perceptions and responses control the chemistry coming from your brain, which in turn controls the behavior and genetics of your cells. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, a revolution. We're not victims. We're, we're total masters. Only unfortunate part is we, we didn't have the education to, to exercise that mastery because it's based on how we perceive the world. And if I don't teach you or you were never trained, that you're, the way you deal with life influences your genetics, and I just trained you with, oh, you're a victim, then you become a victim. <laughs> it's like, so we are in this dawn of this evolution, which is a primary step for the evolution that is necessary in front of us right now, is to recognize that we are more powerful than anyone has ever let us know before, that we control our health and we control the destiny of our lives through our perceptions and and all of a sudden when we start to recognize this we uh, acquire an understanding that we can use that power and we must to take us from the world in its very unstable state right now and move us into a, a new evolution and, and so the first step of a new evolution is to find out weight you're not a victim. <laughs> We're extremely powerful. But if we don't know that and we buy other people's beliefs, then we exercise their beliefs and, and then we create their world. And that's where the biggest problems come from today. I, I rambled on that so long, but you, you asked for volume one, so I had to give it to you. <laughs> I took notes on everything you said. I could repeat it all. <laughs> uh, You've written another book, which which is basically where, where we're at in a lot of ways, because there's so much applications to our own personal uh, transformation, but then we're getting into uh, planetary transformation. You've written, uh, co-authored another book, Spontaneous Evolution, Our Positive Future and a Way to Get There from Here. Can you tell us about what, what is that book is about? Yeah, well, here, okay, let's, let's go say the first book, Biology Belief. As I was writing that book, of course, you know what I was talking about is the nature of uh, where we get our beliefs from, because the beliefs control what happens to us. And so I talk about how we were programmed, uh, especially in the last uh, trimester of fetal development, in the first six years of our lives, we are downloaded with other people's beliefs, uh, because our mind is operating at a, uh, um, an EEG frequency called theta, which is uh, actually hypnosis. So... The first six years, we learn about how to fit into our world by observing the people around us, our parents, our family, our community, our culture. And we download their understanding of life, and, and that becomes our fundamental uh, programs in the subconscious mind, which essentially run our lives. So uh, we create other people's beliefs, and the world is in a really pretty interesting situation. And when I was looking about, well, how you can personally you know, take your beliefs and create this life. But when I was writing that, it dawned on me. I said, well, my book here is about how as, uh, us as individuals, 
are influencing our lives. But then the, uh, the thought occurred to me while I was doing it, and said, well, wait, what if a large number of people share the same belief system? And then I said, oh, my God, that's the nature of civilization. When we all uh, ascribe, you know, a large number ascribe to a very common belief, then that's what we engage in. And because we engage in it, that's what we manifest. So all of a sudden I said, my God, the world that we're manifesting didn't get here by accident or we just ended up here. The world we're manifesting is we are actually creating this. And so, uh, again, uh, you know, like when we blamed everything on the genes, we were victims. Uh, we, we also believe that we're just victims of this whole world thing. And it's like, no, we're all participating because in some way or another we're all connected to the story and are engaging our lives to conform to the story. So what I saw was, oh, my goodness, civilizations come and go. Civilizations have different characteristics to them. And then what I started to recognize was, well, first of all, there's something called the perennial questions, questions that have been asked by humans for over 10,000 years. And these are three questions. How did I get here? Why am I here? And now that I'm here, how do I make the best of it? And here's what I found out through my work, and it's like this is like mind-boggling when you think about it. It turns out whoever provides the answers to those questions that the majority of the public buys into. In other words, whoever gave us answers to those questions, uh, how do we get here, why are we here, and how do we make the best of it? When a large enough portion of the population buys them, those answers become the fundamental cultural beliefs on which we establish the rest of our cultural behavior. Because this is the way, fundamental to the way life is. If you understand that, then how would you create a life based on these truths, so-called? Uh, also, whoever gives us the answers to those questions becomes what we call the truth provider for that civilization. So whoever you accept the answers of how you got here, etc., uh, you will also seek those same people out if you have other questions about anything. They become the like the the voice of uh, of truth for that civilization. So that the character of a civilization is based on the answers we accept to those questions, and whoever provides those answers also controls the beliefs about the rest of everything. So what happens, and this is what I saw, was at different times the answers to the questions change. When the answers to the questions change, it automatically signals the end of an old civilization and the dawning of a new civilization based on a culture created from the new answers. That becomes then the dominant civilization with its cultural beliefs tied into the same, whoever the truth provider is for those answers, and they become the next civilization and then uh, inevitably there are stresses that happen, and that causes uh, the, you know, the introduction of new answers to the question. And when new answers come in, then the old truth providers are, are lost. The new truth providers come in with new answers and new cultures to conform to that, so that every time the questions get different answers, the civilization changes. Well, if I just go back over the last two civilizations, so the one we're in and the previous one, the previous one was called Judeo-Christian monotheism, a civilization where the answers to the questions, how do we get here? Divine intervention. Why are we here? According to the church which was running it, uh, because we bought the beliefs, uh, we're here to live out plays of morality to see if we're worthy enough to go to the higher place called heaven. 
And how do you make the best of it? And the church would say, follow the laws of the Scripture in the church. So uh, we buy the answers from them. We live a whole world whose culture is based on the truth of the church. And we buy this and try to live uh, a world and create behaviors that conform to those particular truths. So there, there, in the civilization, there was you know, the, the concept that uh, this is just a way station, planet Earth. We're all going to go to heaven, possibly, if we do well here, and this is what we're testing to find out and all that stuff. And uh, we built a culture on the, on the beliefs of the church that had some very good things and it had some really bad things. <laughs> I mean, uh, the fact that you could burn witches at the stake and that was good for them was a cultural belief which led you know, a town to show up with all the family and kids like a Fourth of July picnic to go to a witch burning because this is the we're saving the witch. <laughs> it's like, and that was a people. Nobody questioned that. That was just as much like going to the Fourth of July because of Independence Day. It was, that's what we did. But the civilization changed when science brought in the belief of Charles Darwin, because with Darwin there was a new understanding of how we got here. It wasn't divine intervention, just God you know, created the earth and it stuck us on the top. Now, there was an evolution, and we went through this process and got here through an evolution. So the answers to the questions changed. So how do we get here? Random mutations. So why are we here? Well, that one was a problem, because if you got here by accident, then there was no purpose for us to be here. So science said, well, there's actually no reason. We just lucked out. But they did have an answer for how to make the best of it, and again, that was based on Darwinian theory. It said, uh, life is a struggle for existence with a competition for fitness. That was the, the short version of what this is all about. And therefore, it said then survival is uh, survival of the fittest, in, uh, which means whatever you do to survive, that's okay. The previous generation of the church at least had morality of what you should try to do. But when we got the new Darwinian belief, morality stepped out the window. There wasn't, uh, there was no necessity to talk about that. You just ne- needed to have the end. I mean, uh, the significance is Nazi Germany was pure scientific Darwinism. You know, it says get rid of the weak people. <laughs> they made a selection, and did that. That was like creating a master race. So that was like the full extent of taking a scientific theory, which now, because science became the truth provider. Think about it this way. In the day when the church ran civilization, Judeo-Christian monotheism, if you had a question about life, you would go ask the guy in the black frock your question and get your answer from him. And then I say, well, today, scientific materialism, science becomes a truth provider. So we don't go back to the, to the church for our questions. Now we go to the guy in the white frock, the scientist, mm-hmm. and ask them their, their answer. So we change truth providers, and we change culture, and conform now to this world of competition and survival of the fittest and, and uh, you know, the a world based on individuals, not based on communities, because survival of the fittest doesn't say anything about the community. It just talks about who are the individuals. And it's like that, was the way, that is the way we're living right now. Uh, And the science also is a Newtonian science of a physical, mechanical world, which ignores the the invisible realm in in the world of science today. They don't talk about it. But the answers to the questions change. And why is that relevant? Because in the last 20 or 30 years, new answers have come in. And why is that relevant? The answer is every time the answers to the question changes, the civilization changes. And we are now at the crux of an ending of a civilization and the beginning of a new one. That's why when I we first got on, I said 
the, the people listening are part of the, the new the new evolution. They're they're seeking answers that didn't come out of the box. They're looking for something different because it doesn't work anymore. And so, and how the answers change? Well, the answers change. Number one, we didn't get here through just random mutations. We got here through an adaptive process where organisms fit and match and conform to an environment. We didn't get here just by an accident of a genetic mutation. Every organism that's here was was or genetically designed to fit what was here. That includes us. And and, and then uh, why are we here? Well, every organism that's introduced in the environment is involved with bringing harmony and balance to the environment, something that James Lovelock, the scientist, identified years ago as Gaia. The, the whole planet is a living system and that the biosphere is very important in keeping harmony and balance that, so that our temperatures stay within a range and the you know composition of the air is usable and all these kinds of things like that. Every organism participates in that. So we didn't get here by action. We got here in bringing harmony and balance to the system. And uh, how do we make the best of it? And the answer is by taking care of the system from which we we came, which is called Gaia, Mother Nature, you know, the planet, Earth. And our failure to do that, our failure along every one of those three answers because of the previous, uh, the current, actually, materialistic science uh, civilization, which has the different answers, we're living according to a world based on that culture of Darwinian survival of the fittest. We're moving into a world that is based uh, on the survival of the most cooperative, recognizing that the entire biosphere is one cooperative entire living system and we are part of it. And if we undermine that that biosphere, then by definition we cut our own legs off. And this is where we are today. We're not sustainable. We're coming to the end. We're facing a, a choice point. It's clear as anything in the world. It says, continue doing what you're doing, and science has already acknowledged the fact that we are going extinct. Not like in a million years, not even in a hundred years. That we're going, we're going fast. Like in thirty years, it's recognized that there won't be fish in the ocean if we continue as we're going today, right now. And it's like that's almost like science fiction. But the fact is, what does it mean? Well, there have been five mass extinctions in the history of the planet up to now, and the five mass extinctions really result in an almost a loss of the the whole living system, and the threads that were left built a new one. Five times has happened, they're called mass extinctions, and the five previous mass extinctions are attributed to things like comets or asteroids hitting the planet or uh, geological upheavals, you know, with massive volcanoes and things like that destroying the environment, killing out life, and then life starts over again. There have been five of those, but now science has recognized at this very minute, at this very second that we are talking right now, we are already into the sixth mass extinction of life. We're losing species of organisms faster than in recorded history. So the, the, the understanding is that we're, we're really approaching a, a, you know, a rapid upheaval on this planet, and, and, and we're already expressing the mass extinction, and yet science has also come up with the cause of the current one, and it's called human behavior. And basically it says the way we've been living, the way we've been treating each other, the way we've been treating the planet, our lack of awareness of our presence here and, and the nature of the harmony of the garden that we were given and all that, uh, all that has led us on a path that has been destructive of our own world. And so basically uh, Nature, the journal Nature, one of the most prestigious journals in the world, just three weeks ago had an article that said, 
we are now at the tipping point. And the tipping point means this, that if we progress any deeper into this, irreversible changes will will uh, alter the environment so much that it will create environments humans have never experienced before. So it's like we're on the edge of this thing. So I say, okay, we, have, we, we hit the crossroads. Continue doing what we do and living the way we are living, and extinction is imminent. Well, that then says, well, all the crises we're facing are actually representing this big singular crisis of, of survival. And what it also says is this, there's one way out, and the way out is change human behavior and basically start to become more aware of who we are and how powerful we are and that we influence all this and stop you know, being uh, programmed as victims uh, and start recognizing the power of our consciousness and our ability to change and that the evolution that is right at our doorstep is the, the, the most major evolutionary step on this planet that has ever seen. And, it, and here's what it boils down to as simple as this. Human beings are beginning to own a simple reality. We are not individuals, as emphasized in Darwinian theory, a world of individuals. That, in truth, we are all cells in the body of one superorganism called humanity. And that this evolution is not a physical evolution. We stay looking just like we look. We behave just like, you know, well, hopefully better than we are. But, uh, but the fact is, it's a change in the way uh, that we relate to each other and the way we relate to the planet. It's a change in the state of consciousness that will bring unity to this world. And, and we're on the edge of the collapse of the old system. And, and I know so many people are in fear. And it's like, to me, it's like, no, you don't, you don't get it. This is the best thing that could ever happen. Because if we continue the old system and put band-aids on it, uh, the, the, the outcome will be disastrous. And so the fall of the system that we're in right now, which is really coming very close, and like, you know, I'm not talking years down the road. We are measured in months down the road. Really, there's going to be a change, and the old system will really start to crumble, which it's doing. And the new system, created with the beliefs and hopes and wishes and aspirations of, of the cultural creatives that see a better world, a world of harmony and peace and love and, and, and a, a return of a garden and, and all this stuff. This community is evolving right now and, and is, is, is growing into the new state as the other one is coming down. So uh, when you see the institutions falling, which they are, everyone uh, from economics, politics, academia, religious institutions, uh, all, all health care, all these things, they're not working. And, and the reason is is because we push them to a point where it is now basically lethal to keep following them. Therefore, when you see it falling down, you have two choices. You could go, uh, oh, my God, the whole world's falling apart. Or you could go, thank God we are now getting ready to walk on a new path, a path that will take us to a place that all of us really aspire, you know, heaven on earth. And, and it's, it's potential, it's imminent, but it requires all of us as participants, not viewers, not passive people sit in our seat and wait and say, come on, come on, evolution. It's like, no, we each are active individuals in creating a collective community. And for those out there that are what are called the millennial generation, which is 
post-baby boomer generation. Everybody post-baby boomer is now in one thing called the millennials, and they're playing one of the most important roles in the evolution of this planet, and they don't even know it. They find themselves highly educated, no jobs, deep in debt, can't get a foot in the door, being despondent over, oh, my God, what are we going to do here? And they don't realize they are the most profoundly important group in facilitating an evolution for the reason is they're not connected to the old structure. And that's what keeps the old structure going is how many people are connected to the old structure. Now we're nearing 50% of the population is not even involved with the structure. And that is becoming a place where the turning point happens, where where so few people are holding on to the structure that the old one can disappear and the new one can come into place. And so the millennials are playing one of the most important roles in generating uh, a new civilization with new ideas and beliefs. And, uh, and I bless all those young people out there because while they see themselves being lost, the truth is they are really unaware of the fact that they are the architects of this new future. Did I go on again for a long time? You did, and I took notes, and I listened to every every word you said, <laughs> and I love it all. I love it all. Um, it's so true about uh, young people today. Who I have a son who's twenty four, and uh, yeah, you know, you're they. I, he's very aware. He's part of creating a new world. He's mm-hmm. very aware of that, and so are most of his friends. Very aware of that. Um, I think they take it as a responsibility and a calling, very much so. Uh, We have talked about so many things, and I would love to talk about a mutual friend we have, Nikki Scully, who you have traveled to Egypt with. Oh, absolutely. What a a wonderful life experience that was. I have to tell you, it was just, like, unbelievable. I don't think I could go back unless I go with Nikki because... uh, uh, I don't think I could ever have those experiences come near what what was provided by by Nikki. I mean, she she's been doing it for so long and knows so many people, and, and that's the name of the game. It's who you know there, and things that we were treated to being with her it was just unbelievable. I mean, I I still remember we were we had the Cairo Museum just for our group, the forty some people in our group for at night, just us. We were the only ones, and and. My partner Margaret and I—I I remember just standing in the in the King Tut room, with all the stuff from King Tut, all the magnificent things that traveled around the world. Millions of people lined up to try and see this, and there, Margaret and I are alone in the King Tut room. <laughs> it was like, <gasps> you know, or or have the whole pyramid to our the Great Pyramid to ourselves, or the Sphinx to ourselves. It was so. Um, yeah, obviously, I'm gushing about Nikki because uh, what magic she creates. Yes, that was the word I was going to use, magic. I've studied with her, and I've interviewed she and her husband, Mark Hallert, and magic, wow, magic. It's it's powerful, and, you know, we're always surrounded by magic, and we are the magic, but when you're anywhere near Nikki, it's just you can't, you can't ignore it. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a magic amplification. <laughs> that's, that's her job. She's good at it. She's very good at it. Absolutely. Now, you, you are going to be in Loveland, Colorado on Saturday, July 21st, and you have an all-day workshop there. And I love the title. I'm going to share it. It's called Get Your Shift Together, The Science of Global and Personal Transformation. Can you tell us about that day that you'll be spending in Loveland? 
Yeah, it's really wonderful. I'm sharing it with a friend of mine, um, uh, Dr. Joe. Uh, 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 Dispenza, people may not know Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe. Uh, and both of us uh, are involved with the nature of uh, um, how our beliefs shape our lives. I do more the you know, the biological aspect and how it shapes our our biology, our genetics, our disease, and how we got the beliefs and all that. And Joe expands upon that uh, and talks about how we can manage and manipulate these beliefs and control them so that we can re-empower ourselves. Uh, so it, it's a it's an opportunity to get into the basics of my God. How you know people talk about mind body and medicine wants to totally ignore the concept because uh, you can't really uh, deal with the pharmaceutical company. It's it's not the doctors. It's the it's the industry of medicine doesn't want us to get into mind body because if you really understand mind body, you don't need the damn pharmaceuticals at all. In fact, the healthiest thing we could ever do is take back power and control over our lives by recognizing that the mind-body, you know, the mechanism is real and it works. Matter of fact, we actually discussed it without saying so, but that was uh, how, how, you know, the skin-covered Petri dish. Mind-body is how your, your perception of, like, let's say, love or stress changes the neurochemistry, which in turn changes the, the blood's composition, which in turn is the culture medium that controls the behavior and genetics of the cell. So mind-body is not a mystery at all. They don't want to talk about it because... If you really become aware and so powerful in your mind, then you really don't need the pharmaceutical industry at all, and they're quite aware of that. So uh, uh, this is an opportunity to enlighten people about the science of all this stuff because it's it's been pretty much left out of school. Matter of fact, if I think you look at the textbooks today, they're still talking the same old genetics controlling things like that. I mean, here's a fact. So you know, just like a, a simple fact that's just like. Realize how you've been programmed and listen to the fact. And the fact is this. A gene is a molecular blueprint that is used to make a protein, and a protein is a molecule, a building block of the body. So the character of the proteins is giving us our physical characteristics, but also people say, well, they also control our behavior and all these other things. So genes, which are the blueprints, shape who we are. And so we we talk about genes controlling things. A gene causes cancer, a gene turns on, a gene turns off. Almost everybody's heard of that. They use it all the time about genes controlling this or that. And then I go, wait a minute. Go back to the simple truth. A gene is a blueprint. That's all it is. And why is that so important? Because I, I jokingly say, look, you go to an architect's office, she's working on a blueprint. And you ask her, you say, um, excuse me, is that blueprint on or off? And she'd look at you like, what, are you crazy? It's a blueprint. There's no on and off. And I go, precisely. There is no on and off to a gene. Genes control nothing. Genes are blueprints. Genes have no self-actualization. They don't control anything. They don't cause anything. They don't make any decisions. And yet we live in a world where we've been completely programmed to be victims of those genes. And it turns out, that's completely false. That's not None of that's true at all. It's like, yeah, but it says that in the textbook. I go, yeah, but... For a while, that was true, but new science has now revealed it's not. And, and it's hard to get the new science out because there are many industries and institutions that are based on the old belief systems that when you bring the new science in, it rocks their world, and yet they got so much money that they'll just keep those beliefs from being you know, uh, dispersed throughout the world because it disempowers them. And this is, this is why we're self-empowered. You empower yourself, but if you empower yourself, think about it. Well, then... Where was your power before? 
before you empowered yourself. You gave it to these other people. Oh, you're going to take it back? And then the question is, do they want you to take it back? And the answer is, not really. <laughs> so it's we're, we're having an issue of, there's a lot of science out there, but conventional world, conventional belief is is really keeping us from from moving into that direction, and a lot of it is because of the money behind the old belief system. And then they can control people through fear. And Absolutely. So there's a, there's a system in place, but it's changing, right, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's you know it's funny. Sometimes, Caroline, when I introduce my lecture and I start off, and I I say to people, well, how many of you seen the movie The Matrix? And a lot of people have seen the movie The Matrix. And I go, well, you know, they build that as science fiction, but here's the truth: that is a documentary that we've all been programmed, and and we uh, and the programming which is in our subconscious mind controls our lives although we have a belief that we're controlling our lives with our conscious mind, the difference is very profound. The conscious mind is connected to your personal identity, your spirit. The conscious mind is creative. The conscious mind has your wishes and desires and what you want from life. And then I go, what about the subconscious? So I say, it's a database of downloaded programs. Many of them you've experienced, but the fact is the first six years of your life, the downloaded programs were downloaded by observing other people and listening to other people. So the point is this, the fundamental programs in your subconscious, they're not your programs. They, don't, they have no necessity of matching your wishes or desires or anything. These are programs that other people have, your parents' programming, your grandparents' programming, your culture's programming, and, and it's in your subconscious. You go, yeah, but I'm running my life with my consciousness. And I go, ah, well, here's the wake-up call, folks. We only run our lives 5% of the time with our conscious mind, and 95% of our cognitive behavior is controlled by our subconscious mind. And you say, what does that mean? I say, you're only moving where you want to go, your wishes, your desires, your aspirations, 5% of the time. 95% of the time, you're unknowingly, because it's called subconscious, engaging in behaviors that you got from other people, and almost uh, psychologists will tell us 70% or more of those behaviors are negative, disempowering, and limiting. And all of a sudden it's like you don't see that you are actually sabotaging your own life with behaviors that are not even yours. They, they, they came from other people. And people say, what do you mean? Of course I would see it. And I go, look, here's how it works. The conscious mind's creative. It can think, I say, Carolyn, what are you doing next week? And your mind can move into the future. And I say, Carolyn, what did you do two weeks ago? And your mind can move backwards in time. And I say, Carolyn, uh, imagine this. And all of a sudden you're up in your mind in a daydream imagination. I say, well, why is that important? Because every time the conscious mind is not being present at the present moment, where it's thinking, moving, forwards, backwards, whatever it is, if the conscious mind is not present at the current moment, then by default, your behavior comes from the programs in the subconscious, which then I go back and tell you, yeah, but the fundamental programs, your subconscious, they're not even yours. You got them handed down through your family. And all of a sudden it says, yeah, but you can't see it. Why? Because the reason why it's playing is because your conscious mind wasn't paying attention. So you don't see your own behavior or hear your own words or pay attention. You don't see backwards. And so if you've got negative programming from parental you know, lineage, then, and you think you're running your life, and the answer is, no, you're not. You're only running it 5% of the time because we don't have our minds in the present moment. Our minds are always flitting about, and therefore we're, we're running these behaviors. And you say, yeah, but I'd be aware of it. And I go, no, you won't. That's called subconscious because your conscious mind's not even paying attention, so you didn't even see what you just said or did. It's like, oh, 
you're being programmed. And I go, hey, nothing new. The Jesuits, uh, they knew this for 500 years. They would say, give me a, a child until it's six or seven, and it will belong to the church for the rest of their lives. Or simply they'd say, give me a child, and I will show you the man. They already knew if they get the first six years programming, they own your life because they know your conscious mind with your wishes and your desires will never uh, overtake the, the time that you're operating from the subconscious mind. So, uh, and then, so, so then not to leave this on a negative note, uh, here's this positive note. What would happen if we actually reversed the table instead of running on our subconscious 95% of the time, we ran on our conscious 90% of the time or 95% of the time? What would happen then? I'd say... You did it once or or twice or so. And, I, and you say, well, yeah, I already did that. What happened? I say, when you fell head over heels in love with somebody, when you experienced what I refer to as the honeymoon effect, the honeymoon effect is when you fall deeply in love like that right off the, you know, out of the gate. I, I ask people, were you healthy? And almost everybody goes, oh, man, exuberantly healthy when you were falling in love. I said, did you have energy? And then we all laugh because it's like, yeah, you made love for days without stopping for food or sleep. And everybody laughs. And then I go, but more importantly, I say, was life so beautiful in that honeymoon period that you couldn't wait for the next day to have more? And they go, yeah. And I say, well, you essentially manifested heaven on earth. It was so beautiful in spite of what was going on in the world the day before you fell in love, one you fell in love, you were in the same world, but now you had heaven on earth. And uh, and 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 here's the the fun part: the reason why that happens is science now revealed that when you're in love or making love like that, your conscious mind stays present at least ninety percent of the time. Which means the one time in your life where you're absolutely making decisions and actions based on your wishes and your desires and what you want. Because during that time, you're operating from conscious. What do you want to do? And your creative mind created that. And you created the honeymoon. And then I say, so you didn't have heaven on earth by accident. You manifested it. And then you say, yeah, but I lost it. And then I tell you a very simple reason why you lost it. And the reason is this. At some point, life really starts to get busy. And you have to deal with things like work, pay the rent, fix the car, all those things like that. Well, if your mind starts thinking about fixing the car, paying the rent, or whatever, by definition, then it's not paying attention at the current moment anymore. And when it's not paying attention at the current moment, then what do you default to? Subconscious. And I go, yeah, and whose behaviors are in there? Well, fundamentally, other people's behaviors. And that's why the first days when the honeymoon starts to go on the rocks is the day where, uh, you know, you, you say something nice to your partner and they turn around and bellow at you some answer and you're in shock and you say who are you and the fact is it's a very legitimate question because that behavior which was unconscious because they were thinking at the moment was maybe their father's or their mother's behavior they turned around and said that not thinking because the conscious mind was still you know thinking out there so the default ran whatever their parents would have said and all of a sudden this behavior shows up and it's like where the hell did that come from and, of course, they didn't see it either because they, they didn't even hear what they just said. So there's this whole disconnect that begins, and, and the honeymoon gets lost because more and more of the behaviors that were never there in the honeymoon period that were hidden in the subconscious but didn't play start showing up as more and more life starts to intrude and in that the conscious mind is no longer being present. And, and then 
the relationship becomes a series of compromises versus that beautiful honeymoon thing that happened in the in the beginning. Uh, and so the fact is, what does it represent? It says, well, this is the way the world operates. And it basically says, if you were mindful, uh, keeping your conscious mind present, then everything you do would be creating beauty and harmony and heaven on earth. But when you go into the subconscious programs, you create whatever the programs are, which is what was passed down through the education, the family, the community. So basically it's very important positive news. Why? Because if you fell in love like that, it already says you already did it once. You can do it all the time once you recognize how I did it and why did I lose it. It's like the honeymoon uh, is available to you every day of your life once you understand that because it gives you an opportunity to rewrite the limiting subconscious beliefs that were downloaded during our developmental period. Wow, Bruce, thank you so much. This has been truly amazing for me. I, uh, I want to tell everyone uh, your website is brucelipton.com, and uh, your books are amazing. You're so delightful to hear speak. <laughs> I talk. It's... I just keep talking. I'm so, car- you know, sorry about the conversation, Caroline, which I seem to have left out by talking so much. <laughs> I love it. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. I'll just let you talk, okay? I'll keep <laughs> taking notes. We'll get along fine. <laughs> well, be- the fun part about it for me is that uh, I downloaded all this from the universe, so um, I, I am just delighted to have been in a place to, to, to see this science unfold in the lab and to make sense out of it. That's been a great pleasure of my entire life. Well, and I, the end of the honeymoon that I've been living on for the last 16 years after rewriting the program, which is the subject of a new book that will be coming out in the spring called The Honeymoon Effect. Oh, great. That's fantastic. Well, I look forward to having you back on and reading The Honeymoon Effect. And uh, it's also exciting. We have had an amazing time with Dr. Bruce Lipton. And I thank you so deeply, Bruce, for being with us. Caroline, thank you again, and thanks all the listeners who, who, who put up with all that talking. Thank you all. <laughs> you are absolutely wonderful. I thank everyone for joining us today. Sending love from my home to yours, I am Pleiadian Emissary of Light, Caroline Roth.